Welcome to the Naples Community Church Podcast with Pastor Kurt Anderson. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you find this sermon inspires you, builds your faith, and gives you perspective to see God moving in your life. We trust God has great things in store for you. Enjoy today's message. Well, we believe in prayer. Actually, I got a little bit of a reminder that God hears our prayers just this morning. Standing out on the steps, looked around and I thought I'd try it. I said to the storm, be still. (laughs) Came up the steps and the squall hit. (laughs) So Lord hears our prayers. (laughs) He said no. And I'm so grateful God does hear our prayers. So we've had a couple of incidents this week. Uh, Gloria Dominic went to the hospital. She's had a couple of small strokes and uh, went in to see her. She is now home and she's doing quite well, but uh, you might want to keep Gloria in your prayers. Bill jokingly has his name tag. It says Gloria's husband. And, but these are two very loved, dear people, and please keep them in your, in your prayers. And then, and then on Thursday night, uh, Bill and uh, Don were at the Ritz-Carlton, and uh, a number of our people were there. And then suddenly, just without any warning or expectation, um, Audrey Sado, who's, sitting, who's here with us this morning, fell, passed out on the dance floor. And uh, they called the ambulance, and, and I'm, I'm, a, I'm filling in some gaps that I think happened, but I heard that the staff of the Ritz called out to everyone, just family, come near. And Don said, we are all family. Yeah. And indeed we are. And uh, we have, we've all been adopted into the, into the household of God. We're all children by the, by the blood of the Lamb that has, that has brought us all here. But it's just a, um, it's just a reminder that, that this life is so fragile and so short. And we need one another. We need to uphold one another. We need to pray for one another. And always, in what ways we can, be there for one another. Let's let's join our hearts together in prayer. Father, sometimes we we really just don't know. We pray and go about our day. And we we just wonder. Wonder if anything is heard if anything really happens because we pray. And so, Lord, we we believe, but sometimes we just want that verification. We want to see in dramatic ways how your hand is upon us. And yet, our ways are not your ways. Our timing is not yours. You do things as you will, And you allow us to wait. 
you give us that, that gap between our petition and your response. You show us that, that, that you are the Father, not just that you're in charge, but, but that you know the timing that is just right. And so, dear Father, we, we ask that in this life as, as complex and difficult as it seems at times, and, and at other times it seems so carefree in the midst of it all, your grace is sufficient for whatever it is we find ourselves encountering and wherever we are. And so, dear Father, may we, may we persist in our prayer. May we just take those moments when we all of a sudden think, well, maybe I should pray. And yeah, maybe we should. Doesn't matter what we're doing, where we are. We can always send to you what is on our heart. And so, Father, remind us that all prayer comes at your initiative. All prayer comes because you would speak to us. And Lord, you would also listen to us. Give us ears to hear than what you say. And we, we pray, O oh Lord, for the complexities and difficulties that are persisting in our world. We pray for the people of the synagogue in Texas that certainly are grateful because no lives were lost, but frightened because they were taken hostage. And thank you, Lord, for the quick response of the police forces there that brought this thing to a peaceful conclusion. But Lord, remind us that those of us who are engaged in this highest of high callings to worship you, that as time goes by, perhaps as history shows, there will be times of persecution when that persecution increases. Times when it's easy, times when worship comes and goes and, and we can be almost indifferent as to whether or not we should show up in church on a particular day. But reminded, O oh, oh Lord, that the church in the first century worshiped in the sewers of Rome, that they hid, they had secret signs, they did what they must so that they might gather, worship you, hear your word. Lord, may we, may we be such a people that we gather. Our secret sign to one another is our smile and our, our affection. And may our ears be attentive to what you would say. And so, Lord, we, we continue to pray for our world, pray for our leaders. <clears throat> we pray for all those who are especially at this time dealing with the economic hardships of, of inflation. And we pray, O oh Lord, for wisdom and guidance for those who are in positions of governmental authority at all levels. Lord, we especially pray this morning for our dear brother and sister Rick and Ann Scott as they will share with us today and, and for the many challenges that they face in Washington. And Lord, we also remember Jack and Lucille Tymon 
and the wonderful celebration they had yesterday, and yet the challenges that they face. But we're also appreciative of the, the very special visit from Byron Donalds, who himself is also in, in, difficult, in a difficult place. And I, we pray, O oh Lord, that you would protect those who, from our own neighbors, neighborhoods, are in positions to govern. We pray for Rick. We pray for Byron. We pray for them especially. We ask, O oh Lord, for ongoing support and encouragement to them as they carry on their very difficult work. We also ask, O oh Lord, that you would remind us that we are laboring to make it here as it is there. So remind, remind our hearts, O oh Lord, even as we praise your Son taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. We know <laughs> there's a tornado someplace. We're not worried. We live by faith and by foolishness. We're going to stay here and continue to do church. And we bring to the Lord our God our tithes and offerings.
now, dear Father, steal our resolve. Give us a sense of the high calling to which we've been called. Give us the courage to live a life that is a life abundant, life lived for you. Open your word to us, us to your word, and have your way. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So in the Gospel of John, Jesus goes to the Jordan, gets baptized by his cousin, and he then goes back to Nazareth, but then there's a, uh, there's a wedding, and everyone's invited to it. And Jesus goes with the disciples that he's gathered together, and they go to this place, in, a place called Cana, not too far from Nazareth, and um, apparently they're out of wine, at a wedding. And so Mary, Jesus' mother, says, well, Jesus, they're out of wine. I guess she thought he and the disciples would go off and find some wine, scrounge something up somewhere. And Jesus' response was odd. She said, woman, this is not my time. But then he, he did it anyway. Not by touch, but just by word. He changed huge amounts of water, water that was used for purifying, pure, the, or ritual cleaning, I should say, turned them into wine. And then the steward tasted it, and he said, you know, ordinarily what we do is we wait until everyone's drunk. Then we bring out the good stuff. Well, you brought out the good stuff now. This is amazing. And it was a, a wonderful big party. And some believe that this was actually early in, in Jesus' career, maybe even, maybe even before he had brought his disciples on board. They, they think that maybe this was maybe in his teens or in his 20s, early 20s. But it says that the disciples were with him, just that they didn't play any role. But the family was with him. And everyone was amazed at what had occurred. And this is where we pick up our story. After the wedding, he went to Capernaum for a few days with his mother, his brothers, and his disciples. It was nearly time for the Jewish Passover celebration, so Jesus went to Jerusalem. In the temple area, he saw merchants selling cattle, sheep, doves for sacrifices. He also saw dealers at tables exchanging foreign currency. Jesus made a whip from some ropes and chased them out of the temple. He drove out the sheep and the cattle, scattered the money changers, coins all over the floor, and turned over their tables. And then going over to the people who sold doves, he told them, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. Then his disciples remembered this prophecy from the scriptures, passion for God's house will consume me. But the Jewish leaders demanded, what are you doing if God gave you authority to do this? Show us a miracle, a sign to prove it. All right, Jesus replied, destroy this temple. In three days, I'll raise it up. What, they exclaimed, it has taken 46 years to build this temple 
And you can rebuild it in three days. But when Jesus saw, when Jesus said this temple, he meant his own body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered he had said this, and they believed both the scriptures and what Jesus had said. Because of the miraculous signs Jesus did in Jerusalem at Passover celebration, many began to trust in him. But Jesus didn't trust them because he knew human nature. No one needed to tell him what mankind is really like. God had his understanding of this hearing of his word. G.K. Chesterton tells us that um, if we really want to be stretched, if we really want to live on the ragged edge of things, if we really want to experience some adventure in this life, he advises against what many in his time would talk about doing, and that is like going on an African safari or having a new experience going down to the shore. Now, instead, he suggested that if you really want to encounter life, you have to really encounter other people. So he suggested climbing over the wall into your next door neighbor's backyard, <laughs> or just pick a random house and go down the chimney and see what they do. Just engage in a, in a powerful, dramatic way. Get face to face with people. Not some distant people, but the people you live with, the people you live among. For he says it's much harder to be in a family, in a community, in a church, in a small setting than to go off in some big place where everyone is anonymous and and basically, you can look at each other as categories of persons rather than real people. Well, Jesus never saw a category of person. Jesus never saw a crowd. All Jesus' perceptual capabilities were, were tuned in to see every single person as an individual. And so he engaged one at a time one person at a time. And so when he went to Jerusalem for the Passover festival and was engaged with all kinds of people and doing some things that we're not told what they are, but we know he had to be doing some healings, opening of blind eyes and, and deaf ears, doing the things that he did that he was so well known to do. He then made his way into the temple and there he saw something very bad. And that was that the temple had been transformed into a flea market, selling of animals, exchanging foreign currency for temple currency. And, and the people were getting fleeced in the process. Now, this is... This is the temple. About 170 years earlier, the temple had been taken over by the Greeks. And the Greeks brought in a herd of pigs into the Holy of Holies, and they slaughtered a pig on the altar of God. Now, you know what pigs are to the Hebrew people. They're unclean animals. 
And this so enraged the people that it gave rise to the Maccabean Revolt. And this is, of course, what Hanukkah celebrates, is the Maccabean Revolt. And they, they, they drove out Antiochus Epiphanes IV and the Greek overlords, drove them out, and they recaptured the temple. And so the temple was restored to its original worship, or the worship that was in place before. It took an awful lot of effort and work. And then when Herod came along about, oh, maybe 19, 20 years before Jesus was born, he started a big rebuilding project. Now, Herod was a major egotist. He wasn't doing this for God's sake. He was doing it for his sake. He was one of those empire-building type guys. And so he wanted to build a huge monument, say it was for God, but he was going to take all the credit. And this huge building project took the better part of 70 years to complete. And it was only partially completed at the time that Jesus does this. But understand that under Herod, this thing was really very mixed. It was not a, it was not a religious effort. This was the mixing of governmental power as well as religious power. And it actually had very little, little to do with the purity of worship that had been established under the Maccabean Revolt. And so it was, it was monetizing ministry. It was using ministry to make money. And so this this flea market out in the court of the Gentiles, which is a huge area outside of the, the temple proper, was where all of this was going on. And Jesus saw it. And Jesus got mad. He got mad. And he was going to make things right. C.S. Lewis says... Christianity is a fighting religion. Kind of an odd phrase, but coming from someone like Lewis, it must be listened to. He said, a great many things have gone wrong with the world that God made and that God insists and insists very loudly on our putting them right. So this is one of those instances in which something is very wrong. Jesus goes into the temple and sees this is just awful. It's sacrilegious. It runs against everything that is the, the heritage of the Jewish people. And he cries out, don't, don't turn my father's house into a marketplace. And he starts throwing tables over. And the the coins from those tables go rattling on the ground. And then he begins to undo the ropes from the necks of the animals, sets them free, gives them a nudge to move on. And he takes those ropes and plates them into sort of a whip, and he's driving it all out. He's driving out these animals and, and intimidating the people with these whips. And then he goes to the cage where the doves are. Now, 
just before this, when he was baptized, a dove descended, representing the Spirit of God. And here they are caged up to be sold and slaughtered in the temple sacrifice with money to be made. And so he undoes the cage and lets them flutter away. He says, get out of here. This doesn't sound like the Jesus, sweet Jesus, meek and mild that we all like to talk about. But there is a, there is a tough, muscular reality about the faith that undergirds or is the, is the core of all of it. And there is a time, there is a time when Christian people must stand for what is right and must be tough in the face of, of wrongdoing or policies that are wrong or actions that are just absolutely abhorrent. And so Jesus does what he does, and as he does it, each time he does, it's a, it's a sign. It's a sign indicating who he is. It's a sign that says that he is the one who is coming, changing the water into wine, and then even clearing the temple, and he says to them, tear this down, and I'll rebuild it in three days. And of course, they thought he was nuts but it was an occasion for him to speak of that which was coming. And that was the destruction of the temple of his body, calling them to tear it down and that the Father would raise it up in three days. And he, in exercising this authority in the life of the temple and over against also the, the Roman government, is saying something very interesting. And that is not just, not just that he has the authority to do this, but the power of the state and the power of the temple is limited. In other words, the state, Caesar, is not God, even though that's what the coin said. Caesar is not God because there are certain things that are set off from him. When somebody holds up one of those coins and says, should we pay taxes? And he says, whose face is on the head of that coin? And they say, Caesar. And then he says, just give, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give to God what is God's. Therefore, Caesar does not have a claim on everything. There are limits to what Caesar can take. Likewise, the temple. And Jesus goes in also as one who is limited in his power because he, he's acting out of the fullness of his humanity. So the whole notion of the limitation of power is not the intellectual construct of John Locke. It is deeply embedded in the faith experience. And the story of God all through the history of God's people is that again and again and again he limits his power toward them so that they might come home, so that they might return to him. And as far as all this temple sacrifice is concerned, one after another through the prophets, he has the same message. I, I, and that is, I don't care about this stuff. It's sacrifices. He says in Amos, I hate, 
I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and cereal offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fatted beasts, I won't look upon. Take away from me the noise of your songs, the melody of your harps. I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters, righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. So what does God really care about? What does he care about? What is God looking for? God who has limited himself in his relationship with us. For time after time, what have we earned? What have we deserved in relationship to, with God? But to be wiped off the face of the earth. One after another. So God limits himself so that we might emerge in relationship with him. So that his power might be known not through the exercise of omnipotence, but through the exercise of his self-sacrificing love, that his power would made no, be made known in weakness. And in this way, our Lord himself climbs over the back fence of our yards and climbs in. He comes down our chimneys and he enters in. He engages with us time and again. He comes to us. And, and then he may do some of that temple clearing in our lives as well. It's one of the wonderful things about our faith. We don't have to get it right before Jesus comes to us. We don't have to clean up our lives before the Lord comes. That's what I love about the ministry of St. Matthew's House. <laughs> I love alcoholics. Their stories are amazing. And time and again, they, they find themselves bottoming out. And what do they find at that very low place? Time and again, they find the Lord meeting them. They find that the Lord has climbed over their fence and met them in that, that place of disillusion. So it is that, that we don't have to make things right for the Lord to enter in. He comes in and he does the work. The Lord is a gentleman. He doesn't force us to do anything. But he comes in and, and by the power of his love for us, we do what he would have us do, and we realize that therein is the, is the great joy of life. Therein do we, do we know the, the thrill of what it means to belong to him. And when we really belong to Christ, we really begin to belong to one another. We really, we really are family with one another. You know, Don didn't tell me that story of Thursday night. That was somebody else who told me that. And and that, that is what God's people are. We're family with one another. And we're, we're like that, that messy place of family where people don't agree with one another or people argue with each other, but they still love one another, despite everything. 
I miss my family up in Jacksonville Beach, and now I can't get up there enough. You know how that goes. But already I'm beginning to think, maybe Grandpa's old news. Maybe, maybe you think Grandpa's, like, like all of us Grandpas, maybe you think Grandpa's kind of stupid. <laughs> Silly. <laughs> That's okay. Because it's family. It's okay with one another. Because we are all, we're all here together, not to agree with one another, but to absorb one another. We absorb the realities of our differences. We absorb the realities of our frailties and our strengths. And, and in that way, we show something unique to the world. And that is that we can love even beyond our differences, even with all of the frailties and hurt stuff that we do. Jesus didn't do what he did in the temple because he hated the people. He did what he did because he loved the people. And he did what he did as an example to all of us, that we, in acts of love, must do those things that are sometimes hard. But that's the way it is in family. That's the way it is for God's children who live with one another, who care for one another, pray for one another, and must do what we must do. So Jesus in the temple is not enthroned. Jesus doesn't take his rightful place. The temple was viewed as the place where God reigned. They believed that the, the Ark of the Covenant was the literal location of God, the throne of God. And Jesus instead did what he did and then left, carried on his ministry until he was enthroned on the cross. In an act of weakness, he showed the strength and the love of God. Will you bow with me in prayer? Oh Lord, show us how we might absorb the weaknesses of one another, the frailties and hurts of, of one another, Show us how we might look, upon, look beyond the petty annoyances that come with simply being together. And may we certainly look beyond those things over which we disagree. May we model to the world what it is to be one, even though we are many. And in that way, O oh Lord, may in our hearts and in our lives and through us, may justice roll down like waters, righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. We ask this in the name of your Son, our Savior Christ. Amen. If you enjoyed today's podcast, there are a few things you can do. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. For more information, you can visit us online at www.naplescommunitychurch.org. If you happen to be visiting Naples, please drop in for our Sunday service at 10 a.m. We'd love to meet you. Thanks again for joining us. Have a fabulous day.